attention over the last few years, there's been a growing struggle in our nation and really with people around the world, growing number of people struggling with depression. Suicide numbers have gone up, and so today I want to start with just a few statistics for you. Youth mental health worsening. 9.7 of youth in the United States have severe major depression. 10% of youth in our country struggle with severe or major depression. That rate has continued to go up over the course of the last several years. Even before COVID-19, which we kind of went into this with all sorts of warnings because of isolation and uh, some of the struggles, mental illness among adults was increasing and uh, by 1.5 million over the last year's data sets. Young adults in suicidal ideation rates have rapidly risen. Um, Those are higher and highest amongst those who would identify themselves in the LGBT community. Um, In September 2020, over half of 11 to 17-year-olds reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm. Over half had thoughts of suicide and self-harm. Statistics are not the best way to start a sermon. I learned that in homiletics class. But the reality is this. I don't have to throw statistics at you because everyone in this room knows somebody. In your family, a friend that's close to you, maybe the person you look at in the mirror every day who struggles with depression, who struggles in this particular area of life. And and the fix is not one sermon that I am bringing here to you today. The fix isn't simply to say to the world, well, you just need more of Jesus. Listen, we understand that Jesus is our hope, but the fix isn't just to say it. It isn't just to communicate it. It's not just the product of the rise of social media. I would love to take time to walk through that because you do see the numbers of those struggling with depression rising as social media has come online and We can understand the significant struggles that exist there because our self-identity is how many people like what I posted, how many people don't like what I posted, and we find our value in all sorts of wrong places. It's a complicated issue because life in a fallen and broken world is complicated. But today I do want to focus our attention on on one area that I, I believe can be of help to us. And it's an area that I believe that, that we have not taught well on. I will say I have not taught well on this particular area. I want to talk today about biblical lament. L- lament means to, to cry or, or to howl. It's a, it's a passionate prayer or expression of grief. In scriptures, lament is defined as this. Um, it is prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And so as we jump back into our Summer in the Psalms series today and even next week, we're going to spend some focused attention talking about lament because here's the deal. One third of the Psalms, one third of the Psalms 
There's 150, so 50 out of the 150 are psalms of lament. Psalms that were born out of pain, grief, sorrow, the raw stuff of life. In our modern circles, and particularly within the confines of the church, we tend to believe that lament, complaint, is not in line with somebody who's truly following Jesus. We discourage it. If we're not experiencing happiness, then, then something must be wrong. You're not quite right with Jesus if you're not happy. But something is wrong. Christians, we live in a world full of brokenness and pain. Things have gone terribly wrong for what God intended when he first spoke the universe into existence. The world is full of things that grieve us. Death should grieve us. Abuse should lead us to complain. War should cause us to lament. Cancer should make us weep. This is the world we live in. Life, life is not all about singing in a, in a Philippi prison. That's often where I would go as I, I thought about having joy in this life. That Remember Paul, man, he was in prison with Silas. They had this huge injustice done to them. And what are they doing at midnight? Man, they're singing for joy. But it's not always that way. You know, Paul's final letter that he wrote was to Timothy. It's 2 Timothy. And in the closing of that letter, you know what Paul does? He says, Timothy, everybody has abandoned me. And he pleads with Timothy to come. Because he's alone. It's not always about being in a Philippian jail and singing. Sometimes it's the other. Just last week, I had the opportunity to sit with my good friend Nathan Beal. He's a pastor of a church just south of Nixa. Many of you are aware we've prayed for them. Him and his wife Katie lost their baby Penny a couple of months ago. And in talking with him, I, I was just seeing how he was doing, and, and their life is busy. He pastors, he works full time, they've got other little kids running around the house, and, and he just expressed it this way to me, that really just haven't had time to, to, to grieve. Life has just continued to move on. And, and he put it this way, he said, it's like an open wound. And he said this, he said, I don't know if it'll ever heal, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Nathan is experiencing lament. And maybe you are too today. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 13. A psalm of lament written by David. I'll begin reading in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. And lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken or have been removed from my position. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, we come before you today. We're in need. Lord, I know that many in this room are broken about the circumstances of life. I know many in this room are struggling, have struggled for, for years. God, there's all sorts of, of reasons to lament. But today I pray two things as we begin. Spirit, that you would humble us to be open enough. And two, Spirit, that you would direct our gaze to the steadfast love of our God. Help us today as we endeavor to consider and learn to lament. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening lines, the psalmist captures well the human condition. The questions are, how long? Uh, the questions that we often ask God ourselves. Maybe we don't vocalize them. Maybe we don't scream them. But in our hearts, we ask quite often. And if you notice, the question, how long, is used four times. So the repetition here is quite significant to help us understand that David has been struggling with this for quite some time. How long, how long, how long? This problem, this situation, the, the pain is, is like a, a sore in his mouth. You know when you bite, bite the inside of your mouth and, and you're trying to heal it and then two days later you bite it again and it just won't go away. That's what David is experiencing. Additionally, notice the first how long. It's an incomplete sentence. It's as if he begins and he doesn't even know what to ask. We've all been there. How long, God? But he, he can't complete what he wants to say. That, that rhetorical prayer is powerful. He's exasperated. He's exhausted. He's ignorant. He's unsure of what he's supposed to say. His assurance and ours is that Yahweh knows. Yahweh is aware. He understands. He can fill in the blanks. But on his second attempt, the questions begin to flow. He says, will you forget me forever? David wonders if Yahweh, that is who he's referencing here with the all capitals, Lord, this is the personal name of God that he had given to his people. And he says, will you forget me Forever, David wonders if Yahweh has somehow forgotten to respond to his cries, his pain. Did he miss the email? Did he miss the text? Why is he not responding? 
Hebrew scholar Alan Ross explains from the Hebrew standpoint, when God forgets someone, it means that he doesn't come to their aid. David feels as if God has abandoned him. And then there's uh, uh, this word that he throws in at the end, forever. David wonders if his situation will ever change. Will God ever rise to help? Will he ever save? Will he ever deliver him from his misery? Or will he feel abandoned for the rest of his life? Second, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? You know, there's a blessing that's spoken by Moses to Israel from the book of Numbers. It's, it's actually become quite popular due to a recent song uh, by that same title, The Blessing. I love how these people can take a verse of Scripture and sing it and make money off of it. It's amazing. It's found in number six. Here's what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, for the Lord to, to shine or, or turn his face towards you is to experience his favor in your life. It is to be blessed that the Lord is looking towards you. But what does David say here in Psalm 13? Will you look away from me forever? Will you turn away? David believes that the Lord has removed his favor his blessing from his life, that it's being withholding from him. We might liken what David says here to a friend who turns their back on us. We thought we could depend on them, and then we couldn't. They abandon us. They're not there to help us anymore. Moving into verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David has tried to scratch and claw his way out of his pain. David has concocted plan after plan after plan to try to relieve the sorrow and the grief that he feels. But every time he fails and the sorrow and the grief grow greater and greater. The final how long is how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Here we're actually invited to understand quite possibly the immediate cause for David's grief, his affliction. An enemy has been raised into a position of power over him. And, and we could begin to speculate as we know the life of David from 1 Samuel. Uh, it, it could be when Saul, remember Saul was the king, David had been anointed to be king, and David went out and he fought Goliath when nobody else would, and everybody started rooting for David. He became an incredible and an extraordinary military leader, so much so that Saul became very jealous and started throwing spears at him, chasing him around the desert, trying to kill him. It could be that David wrote this psalm from the cave of Adullam, uh, where he was hiding from Saul with his mighty men. And he says, how long, O oh Lord, do I have to wait here? Or there was another circumstance in David's life when his own son, Absalom, tried to overthrow the kingdom, led a mutiny. Maybe David's writing this psalm from outside of the city gates of Jerusalem as Absalom sits on his throne and controls his kingdom. How long, O oh Lord? But what I love about the psalms is they don't get specific. 
They don't dive into the details of exactly why this was written, and they do that for a purpose. The Spirit knew what he was doing because they're open-ended, because we can enter the experience of the psalmist. You don't have to be here today and have had your son mutinize against you and take over your home. Or you don't have to be here today uh, and have somebody who's chased you around the desert throwing spears at you to understand what David is experiencing. We can understand David's heart. We can understand because we've all experienced the pains of life. I think you can relate to David. No doubt some of you have cried these same prayers just this week. How long? You feel abandoned by God? You feel like you're going to be stuck in this particular set of circumstances with these particular feelings forever. When will the salvation come? When will he, when will he defend me? Some of you have pleaded with God, how long until you can get a good night's sleep? You go to bed at night, you're tired, but then come all the thoughts of what's coming. The worries, the anxieties begin to flood your mind. And you lay there in misery, unpacking plans of how you're going to deal with this situation at work or what you're going to do with this particular family member. And you lay there in misery. How long dealing with your imagined fears? Some of you cried, maybe even this week in silence, how long until this dark cloud of depression lifts? How long until I can experience that, that joy again? Life seems meaningless. You struggle to find purpose. Nothing you seem to do brings you pleasure. Nothing you seem to do brings you joy. You're tired of feeling numb, living in a black and white world while everybody else seems to be living in vivid color. And you wonder, how long is this going to last? Some of you daily feel the attacks of the great enemy. You wonder how long until this barrage of temptations will cease and lift in your life. Will there ever be a day when you don't want a drink? Will there ever be a day when you're not tempted to turn towards pornography? Will I ever escape the web of lies and deceit that I have tangled myself in? How, how long? How long until the back pain ceases? How long do we have to go on hearing the word cancer? How long until the grief diminishes? You miss your friend. You, you miss your loved one. And that hole that was left when they left this life just hasn't seemed to fill. So I thought of that. I thought of Lucy Mitchell. She's not here today, I don't think. She was married 60 plus years. Lost her husband this last year. How, how long do we have to deal with that grief? How long until injustice goes unpunished? How long until abortion is, is aborted? How long until someone puts a stop to things like the military coup in Myanmar? We don't often hear about the things that are going on around the world, but there are people 
rampaging through cities, moving through orphanages, raping children in a path of destruction. There's always something like that going on. How long will that continue? How long until racism and sexism are finally dealt with? How long until someone will put a stop to men who continue to abuse their wives and their children? Until poverty is remedied and people can go to bed at night full until we and all creation are fully redeemed and restored when the king of kings Jesus returns there will be no shortage of how long questions we'll continue to ask them we'll continue to struggle for, for months uh, I've, I've prayed specifically for, for personal revival because I felt flat. I, I felt spiritually depleted. I, I could take some of what David says, it feels as if God has, has turned his face away from me and the sun is no longer shining. And I've, I've prayed for that. How long until, until that revival happens? I've invited other people in to pray for that. I wonder what your how long prayers are today. Where do you feel abandoned? Where do you feel alone? In what areas does it seem like your enemies are just ruling over you? Shaking you loose. Where has life not met your expectations? This morning, the Spirit invites you to be honest. That's where lament begins, is, is being honest. To, to cut through the pretense to humble yourself and reveal the true belief and the emotion of your heart. Where has Yahweh failed you? Do you have it? It's probably more than one area. So with the questions, with the pain in mind, I want you to look with me at verse 3 and 4. Here David complains and laments this perceived injustice and the oversight by Yahweh. Consider and answer me. The request comes in the form, these are, these are two imperative commands. Oftentimes in Scripture, we don't find people expressing imperative commands to God. It comes the other direction, right? He's the authority. He expresses the commands to us. But in lament, oftentimes what we see are us expressing these commands. David demands of the Lord. He moves from complaining and questioning to demanding. That is the biblical formula of lament. And first he says this, in most translations, it says consider, but, but the word here, I think it's, it's more than consider. Literally, what he says is, look at me. Look at me. Please, look at me. Look at my pain. Look at my dilemma. God, please look at my problem. Now, as an outsider looking in, we, we know that God doesn't have to look. God knows. He's aware, but when we're on the inside looking out, it certainly doesn't seem that way, does it? 
we feel abandoned. Second, he says, answer me. David needs Yahweh to speak. He needs to hear from him. I don't know, maybe you've found yourself in this scenario before. It was just, maybe it was a hard day or maybe there was a particular instance, a, a tragedy that happened and you just, you pick up the phone and you call somebody close to you and they say hello and you just say, I just, I just needed to hear your voice. I just needed to hear you so that the world could be settled. David says, I just need to hear from you, God. I need you to speak. Because with his words come power. With his words come hope. David believes that if Yahweh doesn't look, if he doesn't answer, that he'll soon die. He says, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. I'm done for. He, he needs a revival in the physical sense. He needs a revival in the spiritual sense, or he's not going to make it. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the psalmist represents himself as a dying man, as one already half gone who soon will be wholly overwhelmed with the darkness of death if the Lord does not give him new power of life. So in verse 4, David actually argues that if Yahweh doesn't act, his enemies will prevail over him. His foes will have shaken him or removed him from his position of power. What David does here in this verse is actually rehearse a promise that Yahweh made to him back to Yahweh. We looked at this actually just a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm chapter 2. David was promised that he was the anointed one, that God would protect him. And so David takes those promises and reminds Yahweh of what he said. To the men is to be desperate. And that's what we find in these verses. We find a desperate human who realizes that if God does not intervene, my life will soon be over. And so in desperation, in an honesty full of emotion, he pleads that God would look. That God would answer. He provides reasons for his request. He reminds God of his promises not for God's sake, but for his own. We have to learn to be so real with God. We have to learn to invite him into our pain. That's not something that comes natural to us. We have to learn with boldness to plead for him to look, to plead for him to answer us. We got to go to him. This is where many of us immediately fail. When the pain comes, as a reference to earlier, we run to social media. When the pain comes, we run to some other human being. who's not going to point us to Jesus, who's not going to point us to Yahweh. The second struggle we have here is so often our prayers are canned, they're rehearsed, they're cliche-ridden, 
and they're just not genuine or real. We often fail to connect with the true, raw nature of lament. We've never ex- learned to express our emotions to God. In fact, most of us struggle to do that with anybody and in general in life. And here in Psalm 13, David gives us an example of what it looks like to boldly invite the Lord into our pain. When, when grief, sorrow, pain, confusion well up in your heart, cry out to God. Complain to God. Remind God that you need Him to keep the promises that He has made to you. This is key, but this is so often where we fail. But we don't remain here. Lament has a destination. Lament has a goal in mind. Lament has a purpose. And so, if you would consider me, with me our third and final point, that we must trust. There's a, there's a key word that we find beginning in verse 5. It's just a small conjunction, but it is powerful. But... Up to this point, David has been anxious, he's been urgent, but now his words become confident. His words become more assured. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David declares, I will trust I will trust. Notice the personal tone of what he says. But as, as for me, I will trust. And so what is it that David trusts in? He says, I'm going to trust in your steadfast love. Now, you know you have a really good Hebrew word when every translation you look at translates the word differently. And that's exactly what this word is. Because if you guys aren't looking at the ESV right now and you're looking at something else, you're probably like, well, that's not what mine says. The King James uses the word mercy here. In other places, it takes this word, and it uses words like kindness or goodness. As a matter of fact, uh, Coverdale, who, who translated the Bible into the English language in 1530s, something like that, he actually created a word to try to capture this particular Hebrew word, loving kindness. And since then, others have tried to create words to help us understand, the New English translation uses the word faithful. I trust in your faithfulness. The, the, the Christian Standard Bible, which is one of the newest Bibles on the market, says faithful love, or some say loyal love. So what's the word? Well, it's pretty much the only Hebrew word that I've really tried to teach. It's the only one I know well enough to speak some of you know it. It's the word chesed. Now, you can say chesed if you want, and that's probably the Missouri way, but if you want to get that real Hebrew guttural in there, you say chesed and clear your throat just a little bit. That's the word we're dealing with. The word is off the charts important as we strive to understand the nature and the character of our God. It's so important that my Hebrew professor, Dr. Schrader, he named his dog chesed. 
to convey the faithfulness and the commitment that a dog has. But greater than the faithfulness and the commitment of a dog is the faithfulness and the commitment of our God. The understanding of the word that, that I've always appreciated is described this way. God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's not just that he's faithful. It's that he has covenanted to be faithful towards his people. A couple years ago, we worked through Joshua and Judges and Ruth and, and 1 Samuel. And we asked this question over and over. What is it? that keeps God fighting for these people? Was it their magnanimous personalities? Absolutely not. There were some crazy people in there, yet God continued to fight. Was it their unfailing love for him? No, they failed him at every point. Why did he keep fighting for his people? It was because he had covenanted to be faithful to them. It's because he's a God who doesn't break his promises. He's a God who doesn't quit on loving his people. Despite what David feels, despite what David sees with his limited scope of life, despite David's present painful circumstances, he chooses to trust that Yahweh, his God, loves him and has a plan that he just can't see. Here, by using the word hesed, David actually calls on himself and us as the readers who sit here today to check the track record of Yahweh. Has he truly been faithful to his people? Hasn't he failed at least once? Twice? We're invited into the storyline of Scripture to see, has he failed? Has he broken covenant? And the answer you find from, from cover to cover in this book is never once. Never once has he failed his people. And so because of the hesed of Yahweh, David now chooses to rejoice in Yahweh's deliverance, his salvation that's to come in his life. This has a future tone to it. He says, the deliverance that is coming. Because God is faithful and loyal in his love to David, David knows that Yahweh will deliver him that he will get through these circumstances. And so his trust turns to rejoicing. Again, moving through the stages, the process of lament. Remember Habakkuk? We spent some time talking about Habakkuk in 2020. And Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets, one of those small books, and it is a book full of lament. The difference between Habakkuk and David, though, is, is David here is crying out in this song, and he's not really getting a response back, but Habakkuk did. Remember, he lamented and said, how long? How long is this going to go on? And Yahweh answered him. And he asked another question, and Yahweh answered him back. But the answers Habakkuk got weren't very pleasant to his ears. 
As a matter of fact, when he heard what Yahweh was going to do when the plan became known to him and unfolded in front of him, he basically had a panic attack. But I want you to see how he concludes his response. It'll be on the screen behind me, Habakkuk 3.16. Here's what Habakkuk says, I hear what you're saying, Yahweh, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I'll wait, even amidst the pain. And then he makes these remarkable statements. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and nor there be any fruit on the vines, and the produce of the olive will fail, and the fields will yield no food, and the flock is going to be cut off from the fold. There will be no herds in the stalls. Everything is lost, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Notice the last line. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's make this into a song. Another song to be sung. Just like what David is doing here in Psalm 13, Habakkuk has done in his response. I'll lament, but I will trust you, and I will rejoice in you. Back in Psalm 13, in the final verse, because of the hesed, because of the deliverance of Yahweh, David says, I'll sing, I'll sing to you. He sings because Yahweh has, has dealt bountifully with him. Yahweh will vindicate him. Yahweh will make all things new and right again. Even if it's the pain, in faith, David sings, not rejoicing in his circumstances. Please understand that. He's rejoicing in the God over his circumstances. This is who he sings to. David, who felt alone, who felt abandoned, is now reminded, he's never left me. He's been here all the time. There's a great passage in the book of Job, and we know Job, it's a book of lament as well. In chapter 23, Job says, oh man, I wish I could appear before God. Like a skilled lawyer, I'd argue my case. He'd listen to me, and he would agree with me that I'm right. Then he says this, but I don't know where he is. More specifically, he says this, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backwards, but I don't perceive him. He says, On the left hand, when he's working, I don't behold him, and he turns to the right, but I don't see him. I don't know where he's at. But what does he say next? But he knows the way that I take. 
He knows exactly where I am. And when I'm tried, when this is over, I'll come forth as gold. The purpose will be known and accomplished. Maybe that's you today. You've been looking in every direction trying to find God. Why aren't you helping me through these circumstances? And like Job, you may not see him. Like David, you may not see him. But please know he knows exactly where you are. William Cowper was born in 1731. He died in 1800. Cowper was a lifelong struggler with depression. A true and faithful follower of Jesus Christ, but for most of his life, his depression would be described as debilitating. For a season of his life, he was actually put in an insane asylum, which couldn't have been a pleasant thing in the years of life that he lived. For another season of his life, his good friend and well-known pastor John Newton, who was the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn that we often sing, took him into his house, cared for him, loved on him, encouraged him. But despite Cowper's pain, he was a brilliant poet, credited with many hymns that we still sing today. As a matter of fact, we sang one of them last week when we sang those words, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. Through his pain, Cowper would write. There's another hymn that, that we don't sing here yet. It's one that I've been familiar with for a number of years. It was written in 1774 and actually believed to be the last hymn that Cowper wrote. I want to just read through the words with you. I want to read slowly. They're going to be on the screen behind me because I want you to just let these soak in as we consider lament and trusting in our God. He says this, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds, of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, they're big with mercy and they'll break with showers on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud, it may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief, is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I share this with you because amidst his pain, 
Cowper, like David, put his trust in the Hesed of Yahweh. He put his trust in the Hesed of Jesus our Christ. My friends, remember that there is nothing that can separate you from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. If I could point you in one direction today to put an exclamation point on the faithfulness of God, I would take you to the cross of Christ. Where he willingly gives himself for you. There is your value. There is your purpose. There is your meaning that your God would willingly lay down his life to redeem you, to make you new again. Romans 8, be it on the screen, I'll just read from it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Check this verse out. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's settled. So what do we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's he who justifies us. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will your tribulation, your distress, your persecution, your famine, your nakedness, your danger, or sword? As it's written, here's a lament for you. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. Because I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. What is bringing you pain today? Take it to him. Take it to him. Take your how longs to him. If we're going to successfully navigate this fallen and broken world with all the pain, with the grief, with the loss, death, sorrow that it brings, we must learn to lament. 
There's no other way around it. We must learn that it is good and right to be sad. Grief is appropriate in a fallen and broken world. And guess what? It's okay to come here sad. It's okay to come to church grieved. It's okay to bring your sorrow and your pain here. How else will we weep with those who weep? This is not a place for masks and hypocrisy. If we can't be genuine here, we're not going to be able to be genuine anywhere else. So bring your pain because God, in His grace, has gifted you, the people around you here today, to help bear the sorrow. Yeah, we want to rejoice with you too. <laughs> we also want to weep. We have to take our sadness and our grief in boldness to our Father who longs, longs to hear our prayers and complaints. That's what's so weird about our Heavenly Father. I don't want to hear my kids complain. That's the last thing I want to hear. You ungrateful kids. Right? They've probably gotten that a few times. He wants to hear our complaints. He wants us to come in full honesty to Him. When we feel alone and abandoned, He wants us to express those feelings to Him. In Scripture, we're reminded over and over again that He looks to the humble. He looks to those who admit their weakness. Three, we must take bold action in asking God to intervene. Save, look, answer, crying out to Him in boldness, even smite my enemies, God. We're going to look at that next week. But we must also choose to trust Him. I fear that too many of us get stuck in our complaint. And there we grow bitter. And we grow angry. We stall out. Maybe we love the drama of that. But lament is meant to draw our eyes off of us and our circumstances to the one who can actually do something about it. To the one who in faithfulness loves us more than any ever could. We trust him. You cry out, look at me. You can cry out, Look at me, but then look at him. Look at him with eyes of faith. I think a key part of learning that you can trust him is where do we look? Well, mainly right here. From cover to cover in all sorts of different 
genres of literature. Sometimes it's stories, sometimes it's poetry. Sometimes it's letters written from one guy to another. We learn of the faithfulness of God. We learn that we can trust him from the apostle Paul. We learn that we can trust him from Moses. We learn that we can trust him from David. We learn of his character as we engage in the book that reveals his character to us. And so today, with with every intention, I shared with you multiple passages of Scripture, some of them very long, so that you can put those passages of Scripture in your, your tool belt and remind yourself. And my hope is that you will go and you will dig deeper into God's Word and you will gain greater understanding of His nature and His character to help you through the seasons of difficulty and to help other people through those seasons of difficulty as well. See, finally, we, rejoice, we, we learn that to rejoice and to sing in the midst of our trouble and pain. And in doing so, when we rejoice and sing, not only do we, we draw our attention to the hesed of Yahweh, but we also draw the attention of others to the hesed of Yahweh. They learn of a faithful God when we learn to lament. And it's okay to rejoice and trust through tears. My aunt and uncle are here again. They just can't stay away. Their oldest son, Jeremy, some of you have heard this story a couple of times before. He was a year, year and a half older than me. I was 16 years old. And on the day we buried my great-grandfather, godly man, faithful man, we sat at First Baptist in Oatmalgie and had a meal together. We didn't see each other as often as we probably should have, but I sat there at the table with Jeremy. That night, I'd gone to an activity in Tulsa with our youth group, and I came back, and our pastor's wife was waiting right there when the vans pulled in and pulled the guy who had taken us to Tulsa's side, and he came to me immediately and told me that Jeremy had died in a car accident, been hit by a train. I've had an example right in front of me and my Uncle Gary and my Aunt Sherry who were faithful in the ministry at the time, had been faithful in the ministry for years, who've continued to be faithful in the ministry. Of what lament really looks like. This world sucks sometimes. And we don't always have the answers. But I'm grateful for their faithfulness. I'm grateful for the faithfulness of my parents that through the pain continued to trust in the hesed of our God. And so I plead with you today, learn from their lament. Continue to trust him 
Learn what it is to cry out to Him. Be raw. Be real. He can take it. He wants to take it. It's the only way we're going to make it through this life. Because the pain's going to continue to come. The how long questions are continue to, to baffle us. But you can trust Him. I'm going to ask you to bow with me. I'm done talking now. It's, it's your turn. This is your opportunity to, to cry out whatever's in your heart, your frustrations, your complaints. This may be the first prayer you've prayed that's been real and honest about your circumstances. Bring it before Him. Cry out to Him. Ask Him to look at you. Ask Him to answer you. And commit your trust to Him. I'll give you some time to pray those prayers. Oh God, we trust in You. As I've saying this week, when tears are great, when comfort's few, we trust your mercies ever new. We trust in you. Spirit, help us to grow in what it means to lament. Help us to, to look towards the coming King and to set our hope in Him. Because only He can fix this. The one who invaded His own creation so that He might redeem us from our sin. He can and He will fix this. I long for the day to hear those words. It is done. But in the meantime, God, bring us forth as gold. Do your work. And help us to trust in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.